This week on Dig Me Out. Red Dragons With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, speaking of the union, um, I forgot we haven't, you know, we've been off a little bit, not off, but, you know, Christmas break, we don't do off. We don't take a break. What we are you took talking like three about? Three extra days. <laughs> true, true. Um, but someone who joined us in December that we need to say hello to is James Dunseth. Hello, James. Welcome. Oh, also Cabbage joined us. I forgot. I get confused when we do that when we have those like um trial ones because I'm not sure yeah. who actually joins or not. But Cabbage has been active on the uh message board. So hi, Cabbage. And James, welcome to you both. Speaking of union members, we have a union member with us. He's back for his second pick. He was here last year for the album Your Body Above Me by Black Lab. And he's back again from Dayton, Ohio, Mr. Mike Bankhead. Hey, Mike, how you doing? okay tim and jay excellent so you're back we actually got you scheduled uh, with this the um event of your anniversary as opposed to many months late because uh as i was showing jay when i um put together our list of patrons we have like january february we have three about three weeks each to do patron reviews and we have like 12 people yeah. Well, joined in those months. So it gets a little crowded when we when the anniversaries come up. So sometimes people get pushed back. This year, I rotated that. I moved the back of the line to the front of the line. So it's going to it's going to it's going to cause I, some upheaval. I apologize for being annoying on the discord and <laughs> being like, hey, it's been like seven months since my anniversary date. I'm never going to get a pick a record. So, yeah, sorry. no, no, just you. You are not getting it. <laughs> no, yes, you are. And here you're back. Second pick. Let the audience know what album we'll be talking about on this episode. Utopia Parkway, which is an actual street. Yes, it is. And it's by the band. Fountains of Wayne. This is the their we- sophomore record. And you guys covered their debut record, uh, many years ago but i did go back and listen to that one before i joined the union that was one of the one of the early listens i I gave you guys yes episode 299 back in 2016 it was uh fall of 2016 uh, october of 2016 we talked about the debut album the self-titled self-titled debut album by fountains of wayne at that point in the history of the band they were essentially a duo they uh, adam schlesinger and uh chris collingwood essentially wrote that whole album together yep 
And so, but for this record, and I'm not going to do a complete history of the band since we probably did it in that episode, they added two members that would be with the band going forward. And that was drummer Brian Young and guitarist Joey Porter, who we interviewed. Yeah. uh, Back. When was it? That was episode 334 in June of 2017. I listened to that one too. We talked to him. We learned about his band, The Bell Tower, that he was in prior to Fountains of Wayne. And actually, uh, Adam Schlesinger was in The Bell Tower briefly um, and then wasn't. And then uh, whatever happened, happened, and they ended up bringing him in for Fountains of Wayne. Um, So you mentioned this is a sophomore album. Yeah, and uh, Adam from and the Chris, band. Adam and Chris wrote all these songs, but uh, you can really hear the dimension that Jody brought in. Right? There's there's more guitar-y kind of stuff going on than songwritery stuff when you compare it to the first record. Yep, we'll get into that uh, shortly. Just some info on this record. It was released April 6th, 1999. It was produced by Adam and Chris, released on Atlantic Records. And uh, they were then dropped after this record, oh, which is man. ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it just it didn't sell the way that the label wanted to, of course, was the answer. And uh, they actually I believe that they asked to be dropped because they were, weren't getting any support by the label. And then they ended up signing to um, S-Curve Records, which was founded by former Mercury Records executive Steve Greenberg and had a licensing licensing agreement with EMI. So that was he was a guy who was already in the biz, in the business and Mercury Records was a name. Um and and then if, I think it also got released by Virgin um maybe in the UK. But uh let's go back to this record. We're talking about I'll bet Atlantic regretted that decision like four I'm years guessing later. they did. Yeah. And, <laughs> it uh so a little bit of info. Utopia Parkway is a real place. It's in um New York. Uh the sign that's on the cover is at the corner of Utopia and Beechhurst in Queens. And he uh Adam Schlesinger said the name is so evocative, it ties in all these different places and characters because there's such a sense of longing about it. So this is sort of a loose concept album. I say loose because like essentially they wanted to write songs that were all about their area that they were from and, and uh, were inspired by bands like the kinks and um, some other artists that made albums about their, I guess where they grew up. Um, He mentioned that, uh, Oh, uh, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen was another one um, where it's about a particular place. So that's a little bit about the record. Let's get into some of the comments from Patreon from our patrons. Specifically, I want to mention one. I want to bring this up for it's not in in order, but uh, I want to mention this. Vadim Tavor said, if not mistaken, I think 
This is the first album Adam contributed songs. That's actually not right. It's the first album with Joey Porter. Anyway, while I still prefer the self-titled album, this is a worthy album and a solid sophomore effort from the band. A Fine Day for a Parade really showcases how they could write beautiful ballads just as well as power pop masterpieces. Also, Pitchfork gave this a 5.1, which instantly means this album rules and they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> I pulled up the Fountains of Wayne review. We will get to it at the latter half of the show. Okay. But Good. let me say, it is about as pitchforky a review as Pitchfork can do in yeah. terms of talking around the album and and assuming its creation uh, instead of actually oh. talking about you know the music. Actual, Some of the other yeah. comments we received. <laughs> the actual information on the disc. Yes. <laughs> Whitney Buehler said it's a worthy record. Nate Smith, for sure worthy album. Frank Garcia Hell absolutely worthy album i love the that first album but this showed off their unmatched polished pop rock chops like a more accessible radio friendly jellyfish but like jellyfish it was the right band at the wrong time i always thought of fountains of wayne as my generation's big star the loss of adam schlesinger was devastating this album only gets better with age of course adam passed away at the beginning of covid in 2020 um in case you don't remember, uh, Justin Moore, worthy album for sure. Power, pure power pop bliss. Joe Royland, worthy when the band's debut came out in 96. It hit me, hit with me right off the bat. This one, though, didn't connect with me right away. Kind of got lost in the shuffle of other stuff I was listening to at the time. It was only years later when I went back and reinvestigated it that I realized what a great album it truly was. Um. Jim Cope, uh, well, Ian McIver said, I'm only familiar with the band because of their early 2000, 2000 song. Guess which one? Bonus guess for my opinion on that song. I tried to give everything a chance unsuccessfully. I have no idea what song people would download on Napster a couple months later to stick into their record labels, to stick it to the record labels for that one radio hit song. It all sounds like filler to me and not worthy of hard drive space in 99, worthy single. Jim Copany, I don't think Fountains of Wayne were even capable of writing album filler material, and this one is solid start to finish. So, some disagreement there. You said, I, I'm curious about this, despite Chris Collingwood's mild regret of the bridge he wrote on Red Dragon Tattoo, this is a worthy album. Um, I will force, though I foresee someone will complain about how many songs are on it. I don't know who who that is. I've never met that person. <laughs> um, what do you mean by the mild regret about the bridge? On his social media, which is under his new band name, Look Park, uh, Chris Collingsworth made a remark once, kind of self-denigrating uh, about the bridge on Red Dragon Tattoo, and that is probably 100% due to the lyric about corn, I'm going to guess. It's a little which, cheesy. Which came up in the Pitchfork review, but I think it's wrong. Not that I don't disagree that like putting a cultural reference can you know age a song, Um but we'll get to that. I think it's hilarious. Um, but, you know, I didn't write it. I can understand that somebody who wrote that might look back and go, why did I write that? You know? Sure. I mean, you're writing a very pop song. You put a little something in there so that, you know, it's like the new radicals throwing in <laughs> Beck and Hanson and that kind yeah, of stuff. Like, yes, exactly. that's aged, but it's still funny. Yeah, I think it's great. 
So we'll get to the poll results of where the album better EP decent single at the end of the show. But now we're going to talk about the record. Jay, tell me one thing you liked about Utopia Parkway by Fountains of Wayne. I found myself really paying attention to the the vocal melodies on this record, uh, maybe more so than the previous one we reviewed uh, and really appreciated like just how much movement there is and they develop, they go somewhere, you know, I think this is a genre, you know, as you're being sort of more trying to be more accessible, trying to be obviously more of a pop band, there's probably a tendency for a lot of acts, especially in modern times to simplify things down, you know? Uh, And there's a balance there where you want to do that, but also keep it interesting. And most importantly, unpredictable in some ways so you don't always know where the melody is going to go and you're surprised when it gets there so i think they do a great job of that uh, just really focused in on you know amnity amnity gardens is one a good example of that utopia parkway is another good one obviously also use harmony then to to either reinforce that so there's a lot of there's a pattern here you know verses where you know they'll sing this this vocal line that's you know really solid in terms of a melody and then they'll just repeat it with the harmony sort of in the space so there's like this ping pong effect going on with the lead and then the harmony vocal which i think works really well and then they bring the harmony in for a pre-chorus or a chorus to really either counter it or um, add a you know secondary part that really elevates it. So just the combination of the lead and the harmony to me is the core of what makes all these songs work. Uh, that even extends to like a lot of the guitar work is very grounded in what the melody is, you know, uh, the vocal melody. So uh, there's you know some very tasteful, tasty guitar solos and leads. When you break them down, usually they're staying within the you know, those leads are staying within the realm of something you've heard the vocal do, uh, or they're just so strong on themselves. And sometimes on some of the songs, like the vocal almost takes a second, like a, um, a backseat a bit to, to, to the guitar lead. Cause it's, you know, delivering the hook. So just, just that really, uh, well-crafted, you know, strong understanding of like how to deliver, melodies that are both simple and accessible but also interesting enough that you sort of you don't they're not predictable i think that's you know probably the biggest to me the the biggest flaw i usually find in you know music that's either power pop or pop is when i can start to predict where it's going and 
guess what the next line is going to be. I, I'm getting bored, you know, uh, even if I'm just trying to have fun with it, it's still like not engaging me. And they just do a great job of like varying that up and making sure that, you know, um, you know, it's, it's tasty and easy to understand, but not boring. So to me, that's what this whole record is about. It's, it's about those melodies put in a song, you know, to deliver them and then putting a band around that, that is really just in service of making sure that that comes through. So that's what worked for me. What worked for you, Tim? Well, in comparison to the first record, which if I'm remembering correctly, we liked, but didn't love. I think that's the, uh, probably the takeaway from that record. Um, I feel like the addition of Joey Porter is the thing that elevates this to being a fully realized idea in terms of, yes, you know that these guys are capable of writing hooks and harmonies and coming up with really catchy parts. But the fact that you can add in a really, really talented guitarist who can give you you know, the, the sort of shredding, um, I don't know how you describe it, like 70s influenced wah solo of Go Hippie, and then also come up with, um, is it Valley of Malls that has, that has the back and forth between the two stereo of the guitar? I'm guessing that's Joey Porter and that he just plays all those parts live because it's there's just so much diversity in his guitar playing um probably you know because he had been in over in the UK in the 90s and he, there's there's stuff that reminds me of like british 90s stuff um yeah. lost in space has that feel and it's again it's like a fuzzier edgier song and she walks the earth but she's not from the human race There's a lot of classic sounding power pop, like Laser Show sounds like it could be, you know, a classic 70s power pop song. Um, but when he's able to rock out a little bit, it, it just brings us a little extra that I think the first record was missing. They're competent guitar players, but not in the way that Joey is. Um now, the songs, I feel like, are much more memorable. Um, there was a couple on the first record. Radiation Vibe is the one that always sticks out to me. There was yeah. a few others. But here, like, every song has a personality. Um, and you can kind of draw back to different bands or different power pop influences. I know Big Star was mentioned in the comments. Something like Denise 
has a bit more of an edge to it than maybe Big Star would. It's it's a little punkier, I would say. Compare that to prom theme, which is. I want to say queen esque, but it it has this very heavy emotional vibe. Um, That's stuff that they didn't tackle before. It's a big dramatic production, too. That's yes. So I think the thing that works best for me is just the diversity from song to song combined with Joey Porter able to inject a lot of different guitar sounds. I was re- I reread um, the entry for him and I was reading his Wikipedia and he apparently has a giant collection of guitars and it sounds like he has a giant collection of guitars because he's able to find the exact right sound for all of these. He's definitely not playing the same guitar on every song. And he's definitely, I mean, I know he uses Vox amps pretty much exclusively, but he's got a lot of tricks in his toolbox, whether it's, you know, the big fuzzed out sound or a very tight, um, compressed guitar sound like on Denise. And he's able to do a lot of stuff. He can cover the, you know, the, the typical guitar solo where you repeat the melody he can do that, but then he can also go off and do in a in an insane solo. So those are the two things that really drive the record for me. Mike, you put you picked this record. What is it that works best for you on this album? The songwriting, it is impeccable. And when this record came out, I was I was just starting to write songs and I never thought they were good enough to show anyone. So it's way after this before I got around to actually deciding to record my own music. But this is kind of like a, if you want to know how to write a good rock song, this album's a really good one-on-one on that. I think for all of these songs, obviously the production is great and the performances are great, but you could strip all of these down to an acoustic guitar or a piano, and these songs will still be good. The bridges on this record, and I don't do it on every song, but when there's a bridge, it does exactly what a bridge is supposed to do. If I was going to send someone who didn't know how to ride a bridge and show them what they're supposed to do, other than maybe the one and say it ain't so, uh, because that's probably my favorite rock bridge, I would say just listen to the bridges on on Utopia Parkway because this is exactly, they, they serve the exact purpose that bridges are meant to serve. There's a couple of songs here that follow the AABA structure, like there's no chorus per se, which is a very old song structure, but the songs are so good that when they use that structure, it doesn't come off as played out or old or trite. The lyrics are, for the most part, playful because it's kind of what they do, right? Uh, Sometimes there's a hint of melancholy. Even when they're being playful, there's a hint of melancholy. And on this album, there's a couple of songs that are just plain not happy at all. Trouble times, uh, hat and feet, right? There's a couple that if you just listen to them, they're they're devastating. Uh, you all mentioned prom theme. The orchestral swell and the way they build that really right, hammers the emotion home. But for me, there's a couple of chord choices they made uh, in that song where they go to a minor that's not really in the key the song's in. And that is where I think the the emotion. That's where I found the emotion in the song, and I liked it so much that I stole it. 
uh, because you can't copyright a, an accord idea, right? So <laughs> I've actually <laughs> actually taken ideas from the some some of their accord choices from what they do emotionally and used it in my own writing. I, I think it's just an exemplary. You can tell that they've they weren't goofing around as much as they were on their first record, right? The first record they were in college together, they were having fun, and those songs are are not quite as, I don't want to say they're not well-crafted because I think there's a lot of them that are really that are really good. It just felt like they took more time crafting these than on the first record. I think that shows in the diversity of the record. Like each of these songs feel like they said, let's give this one a personality. It's your own unique personality. So a fine day from a parade to Denise, they don't even sound like they're on the same planet but yet somehow in this record because it's all like that it kind of all makes sense um you speaking of denise which see, is sorry just real quick i was going to say you can kind of see some of the beginnings of what would end up being the song that should not be named uh so if you listen to like it must be summer lost in space laser show denise Again, with the more guitar-y sound and the kind of up-tempo, you can kind of see where that song, the place that song came from. Yeah, I can agree with that. They didn't go, they didn't go full um, homage like they did on that song in terms of the uh, beginning and the chord choices with that one. But I, I was going to say... Uh, in listening to this, I was trying to think of, you know, artists in the same era that were considered power pop. And the only thing that I could get close to was there's parts of Denise that remind me, especially in the vocal, um, that remind me a little bit of Super Drag. reminded me of some of the edgier super drag stuff uh not that i don't think that guitar tone that which is kind of brittle and compressed is not as uh super drag as what john davis usually comes up with but just sort of the attitude and the um the vocal part i i heard senator's daughter as being something off of head trip in every key like the other side of super drag the less direct you know, more little slightly psychedelic, you know, more sixties influenced super drag. So I could definitely hear that for sure. And I, and I picked up on the, I think you mentioned like some Brit pop stuff mm -hmm. to some of this, like go hippie for sure. Sounds like it's, it's in the ballpark of Oasis, but even something like hot, 
Hat and Feet felt a little like kind of a cheeky blur song or maybe even like Stone Roses. Like there's a, um, you know what I mean? So it definitely, definitely has a blur feel. Yeah. Temporaries and um, even like Ebony Gardens sound a little bit like Death Cab for me, like in parts. Like I heard a lot of calls to either contemporaries or, you know, older bands outside of obviously like the obvious ones, like the Beatles. Like I heard a little bit of Sloan and laser show, like that could be a Sloan song. It was sort of a, it felt, it felt like I was hearing, um, I think throughout the record, what, what pop, you know, power pop sounded like in, the late nineties. Like I was hearing a lot of other bands sort of in this space that were trying, you know, to break out of the sort of the, you know, the dark grungy stuff and, and bring something more, you know, melodic and a little bit fun and, um, to the table. Mm -hmm. And this definitely, the lyrics are on the edge of being almost too cute and smart. Mm -hmm. um, like it doesn't quite go, I think because of the fact that it's got the oomph that it helps keep it like not, not goofy. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, but stuff that like, that would maybe be similar to this, like a, they might be giants. Like they don't get into this guitar sound, so it doesn't quite work for yeah. me as well. Yeah, I think um, to get into what doesn't work, I think it's in that theme. So I agree with you. There's a there's an edge and or um, like somber tone darkness to some of this stuff that then when these lyrics are juxtaposed with it, work. Whereas if you don't have that, you know, tinge of darkness or edge and you have the same lyrics and then the music is super bright and happy, then it's like, they might be giants. Like it takes on a whole different tone. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, the material where that edge or um, sort of darker tone is there, it's perfect. It's like the perfect mix. A great, a great example is like a fine day for a parade. You know, it's, it's got this almost John Lennon-esque kind of melody to it. And, and but there's, it's a little dreamy, but then there's this like tone of melancholy over the whole thing, which I think works great. The first three rec songs on the record start off, you know, with a brighter feel, but they've got that edge. Uh, it hits this portion though, like Hat and Feet, Valley of the Mall, uh, Trouble Times and Go Hippie, where, I start to lose the script on like the tone. It gets a little like, like there's genre hopping a bit and I mm -hmm. lose a little bit of that edge and that, that somber tone. And then I'm just wondering like through that span of the record, who is this band? It almost feels like, Hey, we're going to try a song that sounds like, you know, like we're just going to jump around and try a bunch of different songs that sound like different bands. And then it, to me, it comes back with a fine day for a parade. And then I start to get like, Oh, well this is like 
the band doing something a little bit more contemplative and then you sort of progress through and you get back into more of the you know the power pop stuff which feels familiar with the earlier portion of the record you know it, and the album starts to make more sense at the end too so to me it's like there's like solid bookends of like oh this is what this band's about and what the record's about and there's this chunk in the middle where i'm scratching my head a little bit on like where are they going with these sounds and like it's it's missing that mix of like you know bright pop playful lyrics juxtaposed next to either edgy guitars or just melancholy so that's that's what didn't work for me on the record it's in that theme you were talking about Anything not work for you, Tim? Um, there's a couple spots where the lyrics, it's not that they, they're bad. They just like draw attention to them, to the, like how like, there's a part where he, he rhymes travel and gravel, um, which he, he pauses before gravel to pay so you pay extra special attention to it <laughs> and i'm like i don't need i don't necessarily need that pause there like you could have just rolled the whole sentence in a or a lyric in a, in a row but that it's like he was him winking at the listener yes exactly um not that it's a huge deal but it was just like okay you're you're clever now the red dragon tattoo um bridge i, I want to bring that up because in the pitchfork review it says to make sure the album ages badly fountains of wayne throw in silly pulp, pop culture references such as the guy from corn and pink floyd laser shows which wouldn't be so bad if it was done with any sense of lyrical ingenuity i mean i'll take pavements what about the voice of getty lee over the guy from corn any day i'm going to slightly disagree that this is aged badly because people like corn didn't just fizzle out after one record. You know, they were still pretty relevant in the two thousands for a while. And pretty sure there are still Pink Floyd laser shows going on at, uh, <laughs> at any sort of dome that does that uh, every year. So I don't necessarily think that those two things are huge mistakes, but they do make it less timeless because I'm well, already, it's, you know what yeah I mean? but it's pop music so to me like the whole point is to be reflective of pop culture mm-hmm. now there's a uh, there's an art to that where you want to do it in a way that like it stays as relevant as it can for as long as it can and i think a, that usually lies in what's the context like could i remove the specific word corn and still understand the sentiment he's trying to convey yes like I get what he's trying to say there. He's trying to say like a cliched rock star. Like, okay, I can get that without the exact without knowing exactly who Korn is. Um, so to me, I, I I think it's fine. It's it stood out to me. I mean, I didn't notice it. That would be my only critique of it, is you know, just my ears picking up on those references. Um, but when I listen to what it, you know the lyrics are saying, and and I, I get the point, and I think anybody else who, even if they don't know who Corn is, would still get the point. Right. Exactly. So I, I don't think it's that. Lyric, sorry, I said I defend that lyric by by 
thinking what's what's a, what's a better way to talk about somebody that's got a lot of tattoos i mean that's what that song's about right yeah sure um so i did want to just from the um pitchfork review there was a sentence here that i wanted to or or section that ends it it says if an album could ever be accused of being too nice this would be it nothing offends nothing's no sound feels out of place no vocal is out of harmony and you know what it's boring move to the city or the woods he's basically cracking on the suburbs because earlier it says this album is suburbia perfectly captured by four suburbanites with suburban suburban sounds uh perhaps their accomplishment is to be commended but then again it's suburbia and how banal is that typical uh you know it's it also leans a little bit he kept, keeps mentioning that they're white dudes and i'm like leans a little um on that trope a little too much because i don't think i don't know if he's just never listened to power pop before but like right. power pop sounds pristine that's the whole point like yeah a teenage fan club might throw in some feedback um but that's a, a rarity you know the well, the the sound of power pop is the perfection of the vocal and the perfection of the the song. You're trying to attain pop status, but with a heavy guitar or a loud guitar. Yeah, I also th think it's absurd to say that, like, oh, because you're from the suburbs and you're like reflecting on that, that you have nothing interesting to say. That's exactly insane. I, I think it's actually even more difficult um and should be commended to try to you know the the way that they've crafted you know clever stories about these things and people and places um is actually harder to do than <laughs> if you were from some crazy exotic place that you know wrote stories for you like you got to look deep harder and like reflect on like how is this place affecting me to get to the point where they are with these these songs and not that every song needs to be like this or not, but just to like from no. the premise of the pitchfork review of like, oh, well, that's my critique is like, you know, nothing, nothing interesting could come from this concept is essentially what I'm hearing. Well, and I, I think that he misses the point, which they were trying to make was they grew up listening to albums about specific places yeah. and it like tuned them into that place. And rather than try to write a song about London, England because they <laughs> never lived there. Right, no, right, right. I think Chris Collingwood grew up there or something. Um, they wrote a song about where they lived in, in New right. York. So that makes sense. I, I, I guess Pitchfork is saying they shouldn't write songs. I don't, you know, what do you do with that critique? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Well, you didn't come from it, the right place. So nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Uh, the, the person who wrote it wrote about 12 reviews total for Pitchfork. Sorry, you weren't born in New York City. Your music career is over. Justin, he also gave, um, so they gave this a 5.1. Deloused in the Comatorium by the Mars Volta gave a 4.9. Oh, no. That's the only <laughs> Mars Volta album I like. That's a great album. Um, And um, what was the... Yeah, there was there were a couple other reviews that I didn't particularly care for. But anyway, um, Mike, is there anything that doesn't work for you on this record? 
it's really hard for me to find something because I think this is pretty it's pretty great record. Uh Hat and Feet is my least favorite song. If you take all the songs from their first two albums combined, it's my least favorite. That said, I don't not like it. I just like it a whole lot less than all the other ones. That's all I got. There's nothing wrong with this record. Like I don't think it's transcendent, but I don't think it's perfectly inoffensive. Pitchfork's pretty pretty spot on about that. Like it's great. They're good songs. Well, I think it would have been weird if they had dropped a bunch of F-bombs and, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, it just wouldn't have made sense. Like, well, it's more like, is this album doing what it was intended to do? Yes. Right. Like, (laughs) it's not trying to be something it's not. It's very aware of what it is and what it's trying to say. And it's, you know, successful in doing that. They're not remotely pretentious. And like, it's, they're just... They come across on this record like regular dudes, which I'm I'm cool with. Yeah. Yeah. And I so I was trying to think back. I remember when Red Dragon Tattoo came out, uh, because I liked that song. And I don't know that I I probably did get a couple songs off of Napster <laughs> at this time, around this time, in like 99, 2000. Cause I because I knew like Denise. But I don't remember ever getting the record back at that time. And some of the other stuff sounded familiar, but I don't know if it just sounded familiar because it, their melodies are so good that they sound like melodies that should have existed. You know, sometimes power pop melodies, you're like, wow, that sounds like it's 100 years old. But really, it's, you know, it's just a new song. And But they're, they're so good at crafting these like really timeless, quote unquote, Beatle influenced melodies or you mentioned like John Lennon or whatever um, that they come across as being familiar when they, even when they're not pitchfork out of the way. So this record actually didn't do well. I mean, it got a a little bit of, um, you know, it got some positive reviews. Pitchfork famously gave it a 5.1. The enemy gave it a five out of 10. Rolling Stone, a three out of five. All Music, a four out of five. Alternative Press, four out of five. Entertainment Weekly gave it an A. Melody Maker, a four out of five. So a bit mixed. Um, and it got them dropped. So is it is it because of the time period? I mean, this is 1999. I know a lot of stuff was getting thrown at the wall in 99. But I feel like what I was listening to and what the radio was was not anything close to Red Dragon Tattoo. Or the other single that they wanted was Troubled Times. That was like a single that they sent out and they didn't get any promotion. And they, which I listen to that, I'm like, what are you, where are you sending that? It's what sad. radio station is playing that in 99? Yeah, it's too sad to be on the radio. That song, if, if memory serves, is actually predates the rest of the song on this album. That's one of the ones that they wrote in college that they brought back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, 99, you got Creed and, you know, those bands, Kid Rock, well, like well, who's, <laughs> where is this fitting in, in, in rock radio? Even by the, I mean, so what is it? Four years later that um, Stacy's mom comes out. Yeah. 2003, which was, you know, my memory of it was that it was pretty huge. Oh, so, yeah. Even by their own history, this is a little ahead of where 
where things are or where, where things are going to go. You know, I don't know that. I mean, to me, Stacy's mom sounds very close to this record. Like, it doesn't sound like crazy different. Um, so this sounds like just a little, a little ahead of its time, maybe by like a year to three, barely. Yeah. But it wasn't that, that was like a, we were very deep into in 99. My memory is that we were very deep in like fourth generation grunge. Like Godsmack and <laughs> days of the new and yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And it was, yeah. you know, Woodstock 99 was a disaster. Yeah, the chili peppers and the fever hadn't broke yet. Right. <laughs> it was going to be another year or two. And in comparison, uh, you know, Stacy's mom went to like top 10 or 20 in like seven or eight different countries. It charted in like four different charts in the U S four or five, the album, um, went number one on the heat seekers chart. And, uh, I think the single alone did some pretty decent numbers too, like gold in the U S just a single back when you could still buy a CD single. Yeah. I always thought that was funny because in my personal ranking of this band's album, uh, this one, this one comes in at number two ahead of ahead of the one that everybody knows. Interesting. Well, I don't know that whole album. I know a couple. You know, obviously know the single, but I was looking through the um, rest of the songs, like "Bright Future" and "Sales." I think I've heard, and I don't remember. I can't remember. So I again must have. You just heard the singles or or um, downloaded it illegally. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it's the same band. The songwriting is very similar. Mm -hmm. I think the production's a lot bigger on that other album uh, with that with that big hit. But uh, this was a band I already liked, and so I, I got this like right when it came out. I'm holding the, the compact disc up. Uh, I was never... An after person. I, I'm an old guy that likes. To, I always like to buy CDs and have the lyrics and the pictures. Um, yeah. So I one of the things I learned about is that I just apparently didn't have my finger on the popular music zeitgeist, right? Because no, I, sir, I, you did not. I did not have the Godsmack record. Uh, I will admit, I did not have that one. Yeah, I'm sorry, oh, but we didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, get away from me. <laughs> That's all I remember from that band. <laughs> if you turned on the radio, it was hard to get away from it. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into our overall ratings for this record. We'll share the poll results in a moment. But Jay, where do you land? Worthy album, better EP, or decent single? I'm gonna um worthy album. I, I I'm gonna give the obligatory. It's it's too long. Uh I think you could chunk out a couple of the songs in the middle between hat and feet and go hippie. Take two or three from there. Uh, I think this album gets a lot tighter. I think it's also a sin for a pop for a pop record to be too long. Like always, err on the side of a little too, a little too short than too long. When you, if you're writing a pop record, that's my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, but that's really my only complaint. And, and 
and I, and I don't mean to say any of those songs are bad. Uh, they're well crafted. Parts of them are really interesting. I just think in the course of the record, it's where I fade a bit and get a little confused. So, um, I could see those being trimmed out and this makes a lot more sense and is more cohesive for me. So worthy album. Where'd you land? I agree with you on a worthy album. I also agree that it's a little long, which was utterly predictable. I, I agree with Mike that Hat and Feet is the, the weakest track. And I almost wonder, I, I don't understand why Promptine is not the closer. Like to me, that is the obvious closer for the record. Uh, if I was rearranging this i would almost make it two halves like the first half would be all the louder guitar track stuff guitar oriented stuff and then the second half would be like the acoustic with slowed down the the more contemplative stuff so it gives you less of a jolt so when you go from denise to hat and feet it doesn't feel like such a massive shift yeah um so that would be my only the only song i would remove is hat and feet but then i would just do some rearranging Mike, what about you? Uh, this is obvious, but we're going to ask you anyways. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to say we're the album. I've I've owned the CD for, I don't 24 years now, which is a long time. I really like driving to this one, even when I was a lot younger, like in late 90s, early 2000s. I used to like to put this in the car and drive, especially if I was going to go from to see some friends in Columbus, for example. I couldn't get all the way. I mean, it would be done before I got to Columbus, but it was, you know, about an hour drive. It's, it's a good thing to, to listen to in the car. Wouldn't have to change CDs too often. Even though I, even though, like I said, Hat and Feast, my least favorite song of the first two records, I still think it's a good song. I like all 14 of these songs. And I actually never thought about the order before. Uh, I do like Senator's Daughter as an album closer. Prompting is probably a better album closer, but I think Senator's Daughter works. Uh, it's just that I've listened to this album so many times that the order is like baked into my soul. Like you sure. know, when you've listened to the same record so many times, you just are ready for what's coming next because you know already. So I have mm -hmm. a hard time picturing it in a different order just because of my familiarity with it. But yeah, my uh, worthy album, my second favorite Fountains of Wayne album out of their catalog. Well, our patrons agreed. Worthy album, 77%. Better EP, 8%. Decent single, 15%. So Ian was joined by at least one other person uh, in their uh, casual hatred of this record. No, not hatred, just dislike. That's fine. That's okay. Hey, we've done two quirky pop records to start this year. We started with Ben Folds 5. Now we're on to the, the Fountains of Wayne. Uh is this is this foretelling what the, how this year is going to go? Is it? <laughs> I wouldn't get ahead of yourself. I think we kind of go in in cycles. We'll get yeah. a span of like three or four really hard records, and then three or four, you know, poppy. We'll see. Well, I I a long year. I'll give you folks who are listening a little preview because this episode comes out just before we record the next episode. Next one is on the Verve. Uh, it was just posted today on our Patreon. If you if you were part of our Patreon, you might have caught that. Uh, that we uh, are doing the Verve on Northern Soul next. It's our next record. So if that uh, interests you and you want to vote Worthy Album, Better EP, or Decent Single, you should join us over at Patreon to uh, to do that. A uh, couple other things. Some house cleaning, as they say, in the business. 
I don't know what business that is. Uh, house cleaning <laughs> business, I guess. Uh, if you'd like to suggest an album for one of our monthly album tournaments, you can go to digmeoutpodcast.com to suggest. You can also make suggestions for our new 80s metal podcast via that same form. It's just different information that you plug in. You just pick an 80s date and then right. You know, try your best to again metal the genre of what you think metal is. Metal. Metal. We're gonna have to make some judgment calls here, but right. Not but yes. Leave your Taylor uh Dane at home. I was gonna say Swift <laughs> for a moment. Wrong Taylor. Wrong Taylor. Uh, but that's we'll be launching that soon. Uh, it's also where you can go to sign up for the box newsletter. It comes out every weekend. Release of calendar of uh, new releases of 80s, 90s, and aughts music, movies, books, TV shows, that kind of stuff. And finally, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave positive feedback. Mike, thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for being part of the community and being part of our our Discord chopping it up i i said chopping it up to somebody and they were like what do you talk what does that mean i was like that's you know you're talking you're like having a conversation back and forth you're chopping it up and you're like what no i've never this heard was that a, before. this was a young person wasn't it it was a young person that's yeah i i i, I uh they, they didn't like my tomfoolery i guess <laughs> so but uh they call you a boomer i had somebody call me that and i was like are you, are you are you calling me a boomer? <laughs> yeah. Solidly a Generation X. Thank you very much. Yeah, that that infuriates me. <sighs> They're like, what? What is that? <laughs> There's only two things that exist in this world: boomers and millennials. Everybody yeah, exactly. else, it doesn't count. That's yep, pretty much. I was like, we were raging against boomers before you guys were even born, and now we don't even matter. We knew they sucked. <laughs> we were trying to tell you the whole time. We knew it. Okay. Mike, thank you. Uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. What if I-